0: Hello, agriculture fanatics. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Pasture, Grazing for Change. Are you a beginning or small farmer wanting to grow or expand your grazing operation? Well, this week, we talked to Marshall Bartlett about just that and the importance of mentors like Will Harris, who owns White Oak Pastures in Georgia. Follow us as we interview him about his journey to incorporating grazing cover crops, to his traditional row crop operation, and his growing regenerative meat business. To learn more about Marshall and Home Place Pastures, check out homeplacepastures.com. Today, I want everyone listening to sit in your favorite chair, grab a cup, or a glass of your favorite beverage, because I'm inviting you to my neck of the woods, Como Mississippi, to visit with and talk to Marshall Bartlett about his operation at Home Place Pastures. It's going to feel like a Southern Porch conversation. Hi, Marshall. How are you?
1: Hey, I'm good. Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here and making the time in this busy season. We really appreciate it, and we're really looking forward to all the knowledge that you're going to share with all of our listeners on our podcast uh, here today. And as we begin, uh, what better way to do so just than by introducing yourself and Home Place Pastures?
1: Yeah, great. And a lot of the knowledge that I have is uh, what not to do before we get started, but I will certainly share what I know. But yeah, I'm Marshall Bartlett. I run Homeplace Pastures. Uh, I'm east of Como, the small town of Como, uh, which is about 40 miles south of Memphis in northwest Mississippi. And I moved back to my family farm about 10 years ago to start Homeplace Pastures. The farm has been in the family since 1871. We farmed it for a living for five generations. Uh, It was a row crop farm, kind of a commodity Cotton, corn, soybeans, input intensive row crop farm. And uh, I moved home to take it in a new direction, uh, which is a vertically integrated grass fed beef and pastured pork uh, producing farm. So we produce grass fed beef, pastured pork. And one of the unique things about our business is that we also control the slaughter and processing in a federally inspected facility right in the middle, like literally in the middle of the pastures. So um, through that, we, we obviously do everything under inspection, control that part of the process, and then uh, we sell directly to consumers and through several different uh, wholesale outlets. And we also operate an on-farm restaurant and butcher shop uh, here on the place, which is, is something we take a lot of uh, pride in. And it's a, it's a fun thing for us to be able to welcome folks here to the farm through that as well.
0: Yeah, well, it's rare nowadays for anyone to say that they're more than a couple of generations um, into their farming, uh, into family farming. And to keep that going, you know that it's a lot going on right now in the moment, uh, multi-generational farms are being lost. They're being either sold off or family members are just not, they don't have the same interest that others did before. So to be a fifth generation farmer um, and to transition a traditional row crop and cattle operation to what you just mentioned, it's a regenerative multi-species humane on-site slaughtering facility is just another level to bring it in. I think really speaks to the viability of what folks have to do nowadays um, and drive into a new direction uh, for farming to be more sustainable and also keep businesses in operation. So I wanted to hear a little bit more if you can tell us about the historical transition of the operation and what motivated you to make this change.
1: Yeah, so the historical transition sort of through the generations and uh, what made me want to take this in a completely different direction. I think there were several factors there, but mostly I saw my father uh, as a commodity row crop farmer really become increasingly disenchanted with the way that he was having to farm and make a living. Um, he was I think through that frustration, really trying to get us off the farm and give us as much. Uh, when I say us, I mean me and my brother and my sister, I'm the youngest of three. Um, so he was really focused on our education and worked very hard to send us to, you know, good schools. And uh, he just wanted us to have opportunities off the farm. And when you think about commodity row crop farming, for those who don't really understand how that system works, basically you take out a loan, a big loan at the beginning of the year in January and February to uh, be able to make your crop and cover all your costs until you make your harvest in the fall. And then you hope you can pay that loan off. So that loan covers your kind of labor throughout the year, all your input costs. Uh, The input costs are dictated by chemical ag companies that are largely, you know, using patented technology or chemicals, whether it's the GMO seed or the chemicals or the fertilizer. Uh, so you you have no control over your price, right? I mean, what they charge is what you pay. There's maybe a little bit of competition between the different companies, but the farmer doesn't really have any power there. Then you contend with nature the entire season. So you have the weather whether it rains, whether it doesn't rain. You have bugs, you know, pestilence, any manner of uh, conditions that can that can come up and uh, create very adverse conditions for your crop then at the end of that entire process, you navigate all of that. The value of what you produce is dictated by the Board of Trade in Chicago, which is based on global economic factors you have no control over. Because your product is the same as every other person growing that commodity in the country. You know The corn harvested here is the same as corn harvested in Nebraska, right? It's just commodity field corn, same thing with cotton. So Basically, that system doesn't give the farmer really much. I mean, no matter how good of a farmer he is, um, he doesn't have any price-setting capabilities for the value of his, of his product, and he doesn't have any autonomy on the price of his inputs or what he buys, and he's got the weather to deal with. So that was not a really attractive system, and I think that it became increasingly like that as the inputs really got you know kind of monopolized and patented. Uh, I'm sure y'all heard about like Monsanto and the seed and the GMO seeds, and fertilizer going through the roof. And and that system, as you buy that seed and you're in that system, it completely hooks you into using inputs because you cannot farm that way and get the kind of yield that you have to, to make a living without using a tremendous amount of fertilizer. Anyway, that was not a system that I wanted to be a part of either. I grew up on the farm. I loved it. I fell in love with the land and the lifestyle. Growing up as a boy out here it was like paradise. You know, all I did was hunt and fish and walk around and uh, get in trouble and hurt myself. And uh, I had a dog and I ran trap lines and uh, was just, it was just like a, you know, a great storybook way to grow up. And I also love working on the farm. I love messing with equipment. I love learning how to, you know, weld and build things and just kind of that independent problem solving mindset and work ethic that uh, my dad drilled into all of us we really liked that. You know, I think it became a part of who we are at an early age. So when my siblings went off to school and I went off to school and we thought about, you know, this, this place not being in our family as a functioning producing farm anymore, that was like a very hard thing for me to accept. And as much as I explored other things, I went to Dartmouth, uh, which is a nice school in new England. It's about as far off the farm, I think, as I could get at age 18, uh, um, I just kept kind of coming back. I, I think I deep down I knew this was really all I wanted to do. Um, But anyway, I didn't just immediately come back to the farm. I was exploring opportunities elsewhere, and I kind of bounced around after college. I uh, goofed off in Montana for a little while and then ended up in New Orleans. I did a service term for AmeriCorps, rebuilding houses, basically just a year or two. And then I went to work for a company that was selling meat to chefs in New Orleans, and that was really where I started to uh, think. Combined with a lot of internships and being really interested in the local ag space and learning about guys like Will Harris and being really influenced by Joel Salatin, I like raised a bunch of chickens out here one summer in college and sold them. So I had all these like, you know, little things that I was so interested in, in that agriculture because I think I was just so desperate to find a way I could farm and not row crop farm, right? Um, so when I was working that job in New Orleans, I realized there was a huge market for locally produced meat. I mean, even if you didn't have the grass fed or no antibiotics ever, if you're just like, Hey, I'm producing this local meat that's raised different than commodity is really high quality chefs were like, great, I'll buy it. I mean, a 23 year old kid could walk into a, you know, Donald blink or like Emerald's restaurant and just like land a, a deal. Uh, So that was really like, and I was pretty good at that. And I learned how to butcher through that company. So that was kind of when the business plan was hatched. But what I realized then is that the bottleneck, and this is totally different with vegetable production, but with local food surrounding meat, the the real bottleneck, well, there's, there's several. So one of the primary challenges I would say is uh, there's a real lack of access to a, facility that can turn your livestock into sellable products, right? AKA meat plant. Consumers don't want to buy live cows or pigs. They want sausage and bacon and steaks and ground beef. So you have to have access to a kind of the facility that, that does that. And there's just not many of them left because of the, honestly, the same economic forces that, you know, kind of started in the forties to really scale up agriculture and offset labor costs. Same thing happened in the meat world, right? There used to be all these little, neighbor, like little meat plants and butcher shops and it all just got so efficient and centralized that we lost all of that, which really, uh, took a pretty devastating toll on the, on the fabric of our small towns and, and rural America. But because of that, there's no plants left. Right. I mean, especially in the South, there's still sort of a network of, uh, that's, that's intact and growing, I think in the Midwest, but especially in, in the Southeast, there's just really not any meat plants. So I realized if I was going to move home, do all this wonderful regenerative grazing stuff that I know we're going to get into and sell to consumers, I had to control that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to scale. I would just immediately hit a brick wall. So that's when I, you know, my fascination with meat plants kind of started. And, and we decided to build one on the farm. And I moved home, started raising pigs. I got a stock trailer of 14 feeder pigs and put them in an old barn out here. I've got a picture of that. I think that was end of January... 2014 and then that spring we started uh preparing to to build the plant so here we are
0: yeah so in order for that plant to thrive you need to have you know that meat whether it be hog Mm -hmm. or cattle you uh to go through it i know you raise a lot of that yourself too and you also um pull from your own channels that you have contributed to theirs so would love to talk a little bit more about that later on in the podcast, but would really like mm-hmm. to ask how long yeah. did the transition from commodity row crop to regenerative grazing take and what practices you incorporate as you began?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the amount of time that it took for me to transition the farm from commodity row crops to regenerative ag practices, the, the truthful answer is that's still a work in progress. There's still Land on this place is you know actively got cotton corn, you know commodity row crops on it. What I did initially was took in all of the pasture that was just set stocks pasture. Um, the pasture ground is different than the row crop ground, right? So kind of a a traditional farming model around here in the in the hills, which is different than the Mississippi Delta. But you've, you farm your best ground, cotton, corn, soybeans, your row crop ground, and then it lays fallow from the harvest until you plant again in the spring. So it's just dead, empty. And then on your sorrier, kind of hillier ground, you grow hay or you run cows. And you just have a cow-calf herd. You put up hay for them. It's something that's an enterprise that you can do during the winter so that your um, staff has your round stuff to do. And it's just a way to use that ground, basically. Uh, so that's that's what was happening here. So my dad sold all of his cows right when I moved back. And so I started running pigs out on pasture and then got into cows to finishing them. And I was using all rotational grazing, prescribed grazing, high-density grazing. There's a lot of different terms for it. but uh, and, and then running them with the pigs. So the, the first thing I did was took over the pasture. And it took me a while to start using all of it. And it kind of wanes and waxes with the season and what I've got going on. Uh, the next thing I did was start renting row crop ground in very small chunks from my dad. It was my dad's income, right? So I can't like, hey, I'm going to take this out of this like productive, like income producing uh, farming practice and put it in this regenerative grazing practice, and like, you know, not <laughs> give you any any rent money for it. <laughs> so I had to I uh, to rent that, and it's very expensive to do that. So I do that in small quantities and then of course we have to wean it off of you know you hear this analogy a lot but the the soil is sort of addicted to that synthetic nitrogen and those inputs so um you have to wean it off of that which can be a painful process but my basic approach to doing that uh was again do it in like 25 30 acres at a time like any and even smaller than that i mean i'm sure that your listeners have any range size farms and paddocks it's very important to like take it in small degrees and see what works and see what doesn't work. And then, you know, grow the practices that work and stop doing the ones that don't, but don't like bite off more than you can chew the first year or two years. Uh, Basically after the crop was harvested, we came in and drilled some annuals uh, behind that crop that first year. And I think I fertilized it a little bit. Uh, So we planted basically in the winter, we planted cool season annuals, which is a great, way to use fallow row crop land in the winter, even if it's remaining in row crop ground, and it's gonna go back in that in the spring, you can you can still really increase your soil health and uh, cover crop it, which has a ton of benefits that we can go into, but it's also a good way for like grazers to work with row crop farmers, you know, use that land, not pay rent on it. And then they just have to pull the cows off in the spring. But ryegrass is kind of king here. We do uh, cereal rye, and clover, you can get expensive mixes, not expensive mixes. Your first time, I would go pretty cheap, talk to other farmers, talk to extension before you get your seeding rate right and your mix. And you plant that in the early fall, hopefully right after the crop comes out, and you try to graze it as much as you can through the winter. If you can get a good graze in in December, and again, we're in North Mississippi, there's different zones. Um, and then you usually have to lay off January, February, and then you graze it through the spring. And then that summer, you can establish of warm season annual, which is a great strategy. I've found that those are very fertilizer thirsty and are expensive to put in. You get a limited grazing season out of it. Some farmers will say I'm crazy, love millet, love sorghum Sudan. Uh, so I would honestly just let it kind of grow up and whatever rank stuff comes up out there and then, and then mob graze it. You could also bale graze, which is a really effective strategy for putting carbon back on the ground. So you'll spread out hay and not plant anything and just let the cow with polyline kind of expose them to the hay bales at different times and let them spread that hay out. That's another thing you can do in the winter if you don't want to go right into annual crops. So the basic strategy is to get animal impact, uh, get something growing year round out there and, and try to just let whatever life can happen, whatever kind of abundance and carbon you can produce, just kind of come up and not sweat it too much. Uh, and then get out there and mob it all down and let those cows kind of stomp that down, eat some hay, put some carbon back down and just keep cycling that and see what's working and see what doesn't work. And we've been fairly successful with that strategy. I mean, the, the production that we can get, especially with cool season annuals now, like three or four years into starting that with the row crop land, it's pretty incredible. I'll drive my dad out there and he just like refuses to believe that I haven't uh, used any nitrogen or on on the ground, but, uh. I think, yeah, some of the, it's going to take a while. It's not going to happen in like necessarily one year, but you you can get the affirmation quicker than you think that like the techniques are working. What I had to learn is that doesn't mean that the financial side is working. So if you are a uh, person who doesn't have to worry about money and is looking for like an ag enterprise to maybe get a tax write-off and you've read a bunch of books about regenerative agriculture and you want to do this grand experiment on your place your thought mentality goals and budget are going to be very different than someone that's like renting land and trying to get into this run a certain amount of head and pay it off and maybe quit their day job. Right. So I think so much of this has to do with what your goals and what your context is. And then you have to create sort of what your, what your metrics are and your performance indicators, and then, you know, kind of measure everything to that. But I will say that the practices work, um, making them financially, Feasible is uh, a whole separate challenge, so (laughs) still working on that
0: too. And I feel like with that, you just walked into my next question uh, that I know is very important for farmers, which is who are wanting to transition into grazing. One of the biggest considerations is the time and dollar return uh, and finding Mm -hmm. viable markets. So how have you navigated finding producers and building a viable supply chain in a place like Como, Mississippi?
1: It's been challenging. I mean, running, navigating the supply chain, laying out the standards, you know, auditing farms, getting the affidavits. Uh, just, just to back up a little bit, I mean, how, how I navigate the supply chain, I think is a secondary question to how I came to terms with the fact that I was not going to be able to produce everything that I needed to sell to make this work on my own farm. So I moved home with the premise that like all the beautiful, happily perfectly finished cows and pigs would walk into this plant every week in the exact number I needed them to 52 weeks a year. And just magically every piece of them would be sold and go out the other end and somehow get distributed to the people that purchased them. Right. And that uh, obviously did not come to pass. (laughs) So um, I think that, you know, right when we started getting restaurant accounts and this is one of the problems with wholesale that I would learn warn your listeners about I realized that I had to have kind of a year round consistent supply, which means I had to have other people helping me put that supply chain together. So how did I get producers to produce for me? This has now become like something I'm, I'm equally passionate about as I am agriculture and, and meat processing, uh, which seems like a strange thing to be passionate about, but it is fascinating. And I really, I really love running a plant, but It's, it's really interesting. There are a lot of farmers that obviously understand the whole thing that I just laid out, right. Where they don't have much price setting power and they just have to, in the livestock world, you just have to haul your livestock to the auction and just take whatever you get that night, you know? Cause a lot of these guys, like when their cows need to go, they got to go, like they got nowhere for them to be. They got to, they wean the calves. They can put them up in a corral for like a week or two those damn things are going to start losing weight, going backwards on them. And they got to get them off the farm. They just don't have the infrastructure, the space. So it's sort of like an immediate need and that means they have to haul them to an auction um, and they often don't get the best pricing. So I think people are really hungry for an alternative to that, but it's not just as easy as me saying, oh, I'll buy them for this, right? They have to, you know, no antibiotics ever, no grain, no grain products. uh, And a lot of farmers use that as an efficient way to supplement their cattle in like inclement weather or whatever they have uh, or to creep feed calves. So and antibiotics are often in like mineral mixes to keep flies off. So you treat hoof rot? It's just, you know, a lot of those things. And the consumer's expectation when you're trying to market meat is a world apart from like the actual ag and producer understanding of how to be a good farmer and best practices. Right. And I cannot unfortunately just magically pop up at a store and Navigate the gray area to consumers about like you know responsible antibiotic stewardship and you know one dose to treat a specific thing is very different than daily subtherapeutic doses that they use in massive feedlots and that, that none of that makes any sense to a the consumer. They're just looking at so it's either like yes or no. The tragedy of this whole thing is that people have two points of assessing a product at the point of purchase, right, or or two metrics that they use. I'll say at the point of purchase, it's. How does the product look? Does it look tasty and attractive and like something I want to buy and what is the price? Right. And I think that the, the label claims go into the the first category. How does it look? So you don't have a lot of like time and information and space. I mean, when you think about a grocery store and the visual stimulation and just the rows and aisles and aisles of different SKUs and products and labels that we have to read, it's just totally overwhelming. So Anyway, that goes back to okay, what is your niche? What's your market? What are the things that you want to stand behind and take the time to explain to your customers? And then how do you get your supply chain and on your own farm? How do you actually do that? Right. So you can be transparent with your customer. And that's gonna be different for every person, I think. Like I know some local farmers that don't uh, feed their animals grain, but they don't want to have like a label claim that says that because they don't want to be locked into that. So they just say pasture raised, which means the animals are bounced around. They're always grazing, but they do feed them corn and then they can finish them. And that works for them. you know. So I think it all depends on your niche. I think for, for me, being a strictly grass fed put us into the, A, it made me farm how I wanted to farm. And because I'm passionate about that, I was able to kind of explain that to other producers and get them on board. Uh, but it also put us in a niche market that was really important on the marketing side. Like I slaughter right now, like 10 to 15 head a week Tyson grain finishes. They kill like 10,000. Oh, probably not on beef. I think the beef plants can kill like six or 7,000 a day. So if you just think about the difference in scales there, it's like orders of magnitude, right? I mean, it's, it's many orders of magnitude. So we're never going to outdo them in that product. I'm not going to have like a grain finished local product. That's going to, be that much it's not going to have much to offer to the market you know so i didn't want to go into to that on the marketing side as well so i did have this advantage where what i was passionate about and how i wanted to farm did line up with you know the market niche that i wanted to play into um so once i kind of figured that out and i farm my you know tr- started trying these practices myself talking to a lot of the other producers then you can start to sort of navigate how to get a a system and a program in place in a supply chain that works. And we're still figuring that out, but a lot of what we can do is offer producers premium prices. Obviously that's the main thing we have to economically like sort of incentivize them to practice uh, these, these regenerative ag techniques um, because they're costly on the front end. It's more management, a little bit more infrastructure. You have to move them maybe for planting cover crops. There's a per acre seed cost on that. So there's got to be some kind of ROI. Uh, so that's where the, the premiums come in. But we can also take farmers who have a class of animal that's already largely in the supply chain and just get them to change just a little bit of what they're doing. And then suddenly we've really, we're really we really on to something. And I think for a lot of us in the grass-fed space, especially in the Southeast, that really comes in with, with open heifers and open cows, right? So you have a cow that's been farmed. It's got the right genetics for what you're looking for. It's been formed by a producer who's really passionate about this stuff, and he's got a cow-calf operation. So he's keeping heifers and breeding them back, and he has cows that he's also breeding. A heifer is an unbred young female cow. A cow is an older cow that's had a calf. Um, So when those come up open, if they're not bred, uh, the producer will often just haul them to the livestock auction and sell them, right, and then just to cash them in because – a cow that's not having a calf is not paying her rent. And you know, a good man a good responsible manager will will cash in on her so she doesn't take up resources for the next season when you could have a calf from a more productive cow, right? So um, that's when we can step in and say, Hey, if you're in our supply chain and you meet our criteria, I can buy that cow or I can buy that young heifer and we can condition her, put a little bit of extra weight on her, get her where we want her. And she's already kind of out there in the supply chain. So that is one technique that we found that really works for farmers and offers them a really, you know, good premium and allows a little bit more flexibility and kind of converting them over to our practices. The other technique, which is harder, I think, is to get, the, and we're talking about beef. There's a lot we could go into with hogs, but um, in order to kind of onboard producers or get them interested, if it's someone who isn't actively farming and they want uh, to get back into it, they want to find an opportunity to utilize land, they can get stocker cattle and graze them to finish them. So they'll buy, instead of the stockers going to the uh, upper Midwest to be backgrounded and fed into that feedlot system when they're like 750 pounds, sometimes you can talk these guys into background them a little longer down here in the Southeast, <laughs> getting them up to eight, 900 pounds and bringing them to you and you can finish them off, which is what I do out here. Or sending them to another producer who wants to buy them, and then they'll finish them up to 11, 1200 pounds, and then you buy them. And <clears throat> those are what we call fat cattle, as opposed to like a coal cow. Like a fat cow is a cow that has been fattened for harvest. In the grass fed world, they're anywhere from 24 to 30 months, sometimes over 30 months. In the feedlot industry, they usually try to harvest them at 18 months. So, and that's where you get most of your cuts, your ribeyes, and all these things, right? So there's just different approaches for the different parts of your supply chain. So even within beef and pork, even within those individual species, those supply chains are very segmented, right? And you have to be kind of clever on how you get folks to fill each part of that from cow calf to backgrounding to finishing when you do it, how many of each you need. Cause to to purchase a, a finished cow, it's been fed out on nothing but grass. Um, it's very expensive. We, we pay significant premiums to do that because so I have, you know, wholesale ground beef accounts. I'm not receiving as much of a price premium on the wholesale account. So that's where we we don't necessarily want to be buying young fat steers and grinding them because they're our most expensive cost of goods and then dumping them into our lowest grossing cheapest sales channel. Right. So that's where, you know, paying a producer five, 10 cents to adhere to your standards for um, for buying their coal cows really comes into play. And Juan, as you know, all around the southeast, guess what we have? Right, we have cow calf producers. We don't have finishers. Some people background, but it's not as common. Backgrounding is basically taking a wean calf from 350 to 600 pounds up to 750 800 pounds. So again, we've got the cow calf producers. We've got great cow calf genetics. We have wonderful grazers and managers down here. Uh, and Alan Nations from Jackson, Mississippi. A lot of these guys are you know from this area. Um, but we don't have a lot of people finishing cattle and we don't have a lot of people backgrounding that usually happens up in the Midwest. So, you know, working with people on the open heifers, the coal cows and getting a select group to do the finishing, which we also do here. I think all those things are just very complicated and takes time, but, but you can manage it. I think from a producer standpoint, if you're not interested in selling meat, if you just love regenerative ag, I wouldn't lock yourself into any one of these types of Uh, supply chains, you know, I think you can just as flexible as you can be with your grazing uh, and your financial goals in the context that we were talking about earlier. And I think it's my job as the, I guess we're sort of an aggregator at this point, right? To build a supply chain that gives me what I need, that I can be very transparent to my customers and produce a product that I truly believe in. And I think is like vital for rural economies, for our land management, for our environment, Um, and for our consumers health and our animals well-being and then also hand farmers a playbook that allows them to do all those things in a way that's like practical manageable and profitable for them and that that is just an enormously complex process uh the other thing about it is that no one wants to hear about that one everyone just wants to hear like how wonderful regenerative ag is it works great and we have these beautiful happy cows just walk into this plant and then they fly into your home in a little box and uh, it's all great. But I feel like, you know, I get down into the weeds of this a lot and I, I, it's, it's like the complexity that is fascinating to me. And so I talk about it a lot, but I think that it, it's, it's really important to discuss this stuff and have consumers and farmers kind of understand it. Uh, so that's why I like to, to talk about it so much.
0: Yeah, and not to open another box of complexities, uh, perhaps, but (laughs) you talked a lot about uh, the challenges uh, with producers and building that uh, supply chain. But I want to get into how you work on the consumer side to make this meat accessible to consumers around. I know you talked a lot about wholesale at the beginning of the podcast, but you're also shifting now uh, to more direct markets with the CSA um, and also doing a farm store as well, too, that you run in a business. I'm just curious about how you manage that.
1: At the beginning of the podcast, you you know, I mentioned that I'd be telling people what not to do, mostly a lot of mistakes. And so when you're asking how I navigated, you know, consumer demand, making it more accessible, making it more affordable and getting it out to these various markets and how I manage that and calculate that, which again is a very complex, you know, part of all this distribution and the sales. I think the answer to that is initially I I did a very poor job of calculating my cost on distribution and like baking that into my pricing. Um, I was 25. I was eager to build a name for what I was doing. I was very passionate, very energetic. And so I started connecting with chefs and that was how we built the business. Initially, we were delivering our own trucks because i had no brand no volume no distributor would talk to me because i didn't have any business you know so i felt like i had to kind of establish that myself so we were running trucks ourselves from this little farm here in como uh to new orleans and back every week to nashville and back every week all around memphis all through mississippi and it was so brutal uh i would just would not recommend that to anyone but i was selling a lot of meat and getting on a lot of menus but we weren't we weren't focused we weren't like hey these this is what we do this is what we offer we were just any chef that wanted us we would like custom butcher stuff for them which means we had to like change our process which means we would mess it up or we wouldn't have it one week or we would sell out of this primal and then uh we'd be have a freezer full of this primal you know and um it was just really hard now i think because we were so passionate about what we were doing. I had a lot of great folks that were young and into this working for me. Chefs liked dealing with us, uh, but there were a lot of pain points and frustration. And the main thing is that I wasn't charging enough to cover my cost of distribution. And when you start selling through a distributor, they just kind of tack that margin on. Right. Uh, And it allows you to understand that a little better. So that was a big mistake of mine early on. I was basing, my pricing off of a whole carcass model, like, okay, shoulder weighs this, belly weighs this, loin weighs this, whatever. If I sell every part of it somehow magically off of every cow, I'll get this average carcass revenue, which is what I need to do. You know, that's kind of how you put the model together. And I just wasn't factoring in my distribution costs enough. So uh, we didn't make money, right? We were growing and uh, adding a lot of revenue, but we were having to extend ourselves in that huge regional area to do so. Then when COVID hit, um, we just gotten our first distribution deal like the week, uh, that week, I think, in New Orleans. So we were going to sell it to a distributor and they were going to do the deliveries, um, which is great. And we had all this volume, but then, you know, I think it was like March 15th or March 13th or something. So all the purchase orders got canceled. In 48 hours, I lost 90% of my revenue. Just covered up with me freaking out. Then, every you know, all the big plants shut down. There was, like, the panic buying at the grocery stores. No one had meat. And suddenly, everyone was calling around, like, hey, there's this little plant up here in Como that's got a ton of meat. <laughs> and uh, we were just able to phone to start around. I mean, it was honestly like a movie scene, you know? It was like, I'm, like, in the office, like, figuring out how I'm going to shutter my business and, like, tell all my employees, and like, somehow, like, go to med school to pay off my debt over the rest of my life or something. And then the phone just starts ringing, you know, and it's like, Hey, have you got ground beef? And I was like, hell yeah, I got ground beef. <laughs> you know. So pretty much overnight we kind of became a direct to consumer business. And that was not a seamless process. It was miserable. We had no way to like pick and pack those orders, store them. We didn't have any like system for taking, we were like a wholesale shop, uh, but we kind of figured it out and that was really the light bulb. So what I learned through that is that a, you know, when you're selling me directly to consumers, I think you're serving this vital community function, right? And we were so proud that we were food producers out here. And as crazy as small plants are and how they're economically don't make sense and whatever, when the chips were down, having this little plant out here was getting people meat, you know, and that is a very resilient system. Uh, And so that was like a tremendous amount of pride for us. And the other thing was that, you know, consumers uh, are going to pay cash at the transaction, right? You don't have to give them terms. You can get a higher margin for your product, and they're going to like sustain and come back and keep shopping from you if you treat them well. So, that is a much more viable uh, system we think than than wholesale for us. The consumer, if they're coming to the farm, is also paying the cost of distribution by moving their body to the farm to buy the meat and then transport you back to their home. And then with online shipping, you can you can more adequately kind of bake that cost into what you charge. So. Uh, Not to say either one of those processes are easy, but it just seems like a more viable path for all regenerative ag to, we bypass the wholesale, we bypass the grocery store, we get out of that shark tank with the big distributors and the big brands and the big box stores, and we start to build our own niche by connecting consumers with our story and our mission and our farm. And I think that is very hard to do. You have to do it acquisition by acquisition. It's very expensive. It takes really clever marketing. It takes a whole nother skill set that, uh, to be honest, I, I may not have. But I, I do believe that is the, the way. <laughs> that's, that's what we're working on very hard now. We still wholesale a lot. Uh, but what we've moved into more, just I think this would be interesting for you know, your listeners that are interested in the space to learn, but instead of trying to get on like certain menus that are shifting all the time and restaurants putting in pretty small orders, like 150 to $200 orders. And we're driving a truck to the restaurant, putting that in their walk-in and then waiting 30 days to get paid. That, that doesn't work. Um, So um, what we've really started to focus on, on the wholesale side is a servicing distributors who put in a bigger purchase order and they buy a lot of our stuff and then they send it out And smaller quantities to the end purchaser, but they sell a lot of other stuff too. They've got a whole suite of products and stuff that they can offset the, you know, distribution costs with and then focusing on institutional accounts. So this is colleges, hospitals, big businesses with, uh, you know, third party dining contracted out that have sourcing goals and standards that want a deeper partnership with us than like, hey, your farm is cool. I'm to put your pork chop on my spring menu. I need like a case a week, you know? And I'm not trying to upset chefs when I say this. I hope that that, that has been a big part of our business. It's just not something that's really going to sustain and, and move us forward because of the distribution difficulties. But if a, if a school like Ole Miss, who we just, you know, established a big deal with, it's like, hey, we're going to buy two steers and four hogs from you every other week and you're going to butcher it like this into these different uh, cases and we'll buy all the trim as ground beef patties and all the trim off the hogs as breakfast patties, you know, year round, that is a big deal, right? That's something that really sustains our farm and our mission and moves the needle and helps us move animals nose to tail. Uh, So those are the types of partnerships we're really looking for wholesale now, not so much the one-off restaurants. And then we're really trying to focus on direct to consumer sales through um, a subscription box, hole and half and uh, quarter animal shares. And then we run, yes, the little restaurant and butcher shop here on the farm, which is a great access point for us. So just really quickly, I uh, wanted to touch on the accessibility. I mean, there's two ways to think about that. The entrepreneur says like, Okay, the accessibility. How do I market my product and get it out to people in a very convenient way that makes sense to them and kind of fills this need to them? How do I build a very efficient, like, sales funnel for this product? Right. But I think what you were mentioning is, is price accessibility, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that is a big problem and, and tension with, you know, kind of within this local ag. I think that the issue of price accessibility in rural communities. For my type of product, a regenerative, local, healthier, no antibiotic products, there's a there's a big tension there because it takes a lot more money to produce those. And so you have to market them to the niche that is educated enough and willing and informed enough and has the disposable income to be able to afford to buy those more expensive products. And you can't produce it more cheaply to make it more affordable to your community without sacrificing the standards and the the whole reason you're producing the good that way in the first place. But you're immediately pricing it out of the hands of the people in your surrounding community that most need access to affordable food. And that is very complex. You know, there's government assistance programs, there's food stamps, we accept food stamps, that helps. It has been really fun for us because we're slaughtering whole animals and trying to sell every part of it, we have like pig ears and pig's feet and pigtails and beef liver and oxtail. And we're not that much more expensive uh, than the industry on those cuts. And people love coming out here and picking that stuff up. So I think that's a really neat way that we're making those products that are uh, hard to find in our current, you know, kind of grocery store world, big box world. More accessible to kind of keep those rural foodways alive, all those culinary traditions of cooking, utilizing every part of the animal because people used to have to do that. It's where barbecue came from, for God's sake, um we're keeping some of those traditions alive by offering those products. And it's always the older folks, it's always the older generation that, w- that comes in and wants that. And so that that's really cool that we can kind of bridge that gap a little bit there. But at the end of the day, my ground beef is $8 a pound in the store and Walmart's ground beef is $4 a pound or whatever, you know, and that that's, that is an ocean between those two prices for most people. So I don't, I, I think about that a lot and uh, it's something that's always on my brain. My The business side of what I do is I'm just trying to find my market that's receptive to what I'm doing and I'm, for lack of a better term, desperately trying to get into my head, you know, so... That's kind of where I'm focused, but uh, I am really interested in that problem. And I I think it's, uh, it's kind of baked into the local food movement. I hope that there are some solutions that can come out of that. I think we've made some progress recently. There's like now accepting food stamps at all the farmers markets, the proliferation of farmers markets. But at the end of the day, the meat industry and the big box stores and the centralization and efficiency of that system are always going to be cheaper. I think one of the biggest impacts we've economically, and it, it, I guess sort of an indirect one, but it is I think it's really immediately and directly impactful, is job creation. So my dad, when he was row crop farming, at the peak of his farming with our land and a bunch of land he had to rent, was managing about 2,000 acres. And he had no more than five employees at any time, uh, which gives you an idea of the kind of machines and equipment and spray rigs and everything that uh, that cell ag has come up with. My operation, I'm managing 250 to 300 acres of pasture. And on the farm and in the meat plant and at the farm store, sales, distribution, um, office admin, I have 30 employees. So, I mean, you think about the kind of value and economic activity, um, those dollars recirculating in rural communities that occurs when you bring this process back to the farm, when you're actually harvesting, processing, selling, distributing from and the same area where the animals are produced, there's a lot of other beneficial impacts of that. But I think that the the impact on the local economy cannot be overstated and all of those producer premiums that are tricking out, trickling down through our supply chain to all these local farmers. Um, that's something we're just really, really proud of. And I think that is vital for this type of agriculture to continue to grow uh, so we can start to reverse some of the problems that the massive centralized kind of commodity ag system has created in rural America.
0: And for the people listening, how can they support you and your work and get access to some of these great products uh, that, that you source and that you sell to make it perhaps more accessible um, economically to the folks in our region?
1: Yes, I'm so glad you asked that one. Uh, so how to get my product, how to support us. So we have a website that we, Put a lot of work into uh, homeplacepastures.com. So I hope that it is very clearly and intuitively laid out there. You can build a subscription box. We usually have some special going on to give you free stuff or a discount. Uh, you get to what we really like about the box is we, we set it up to sell certain products that kind of reflect a nose to tail utilization of the carcass while also giving the customer flexibility to choose the cuts. So you get to choose what goes in the box. Um, but you can only choose each option like one time if you're in the you know cheapest box and as you go up you can choose the same item more than one time but anyway it's very customizable you get to choose the frequency that you get it you don't have to lock in every month you can do it every 60 90 days and then we have this add-on section uh which is really neat and that's where we can put all the, the goodies you know uh like all the odds and ends and the cuts like copa chops and uh jowls and specialty sausages that we don't have all the time spare ribs and things that we um don't produce in a huge quantity but we can offer them to our customers at a really affordable price because they're kind of bought into the box membership and uh and then they you know just enter their address so uh we ship that to your house on dry ice gel packs it's it's a really cool program great way to support us uh they're on the website too you can get a whole animal share so you can shop all the different options. We have a few different butchery breakdowns and list the cuts and the pricing. Uh, so those are great ways to do it online. We do offer a limited selection of gift packs and one-off bundles that are not subscription or whole animal shares. So you can check that out. And then the best way to come check out what we're all about is to come on down to Como, Juan, uh Down to the booming metropolis of Como, Mississippi. And come on out to the farm store. We're open Wednesday through Sunday. We serve lunch. We have steak dinners on Friday night. So we, we'd we love to see any and everybody down here. And uh, I guess ask your local butcher and or chef to carry our products. You can do that, too.
0: <laughs> well, I hope people are listening during lunch or dinner and that their stomachs are calling for what you're selling and that folks plug in. I must say it's a very creative uh user-friendly website. I recently checked it out. I know you did a revamp and it looks great. So I highly encourage everyone who's listening to go take a look and also look at your local areas. Who is doing this great work as well where you're at? Whether it be that you're listening to us in the Midwest, and Texas, California, in the East Coast, who is doing this locally and how can you support them and how can you support great folks like Marshall doing this great work even then the booming metropolis of Como, Mississippi here. Uh, Joking aside, though, I want to say thank you so much, Marshall, for everything that you've done and you continue to do here locally uh, in this region and for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed a little preview into our home, Como, Mississippi. This podcast is made possible by the Cedar Tree Foundation, supporting the expansion of regenerative grazing practices as a strategy to improve soil health and address the threat of climate change. Inspired by what you heard? Check out our show notes for more details on the people and organizations featured on this episode and visit our website at wallacecenter.org to learn more about our team and contribute to unique and important conversations in the agricultural space.